they come in, you know, in the waiting room, they shake my hand. They're like, all right, we're, we're getting ready to sit down. But in the meantime, uh, Ralph is in the writer's room. Would you like to say hi to him real quick? I'm like, I'm sorry, Ralph. Who the- <laughs> yeah, Ralph Macchio. He's in the writer's room. Right. I hadn't even done my interview yet. Hello and welcome to another episode of Cut to Reveal, the podcast where we talk about the editing art form and all the hurdles of that career path. Just a reminder, we're sponsored by Soundly, our go-to platform for anything sound effects. I'm Ricky, and as always, this is my co-host, Peter. Peter, what are we doing today? Yeah, hello, everyone. So today we have an interview with Zach Arnold, and Zach is an amazing guy. <laughs> so just to name a few things, he's an ace editor. He's a director, producer, writer. He's an author of the Optimize Yourself program. He's an American Ninja Warrior in training. He's a father, busy father with two kids. And we talked about Cobra Kai. We talked about mental models that translate from the world of karate to the world of editing. Uh, we also talked about his documentary film, uh, which was, to me, was an amazing story. Very exciting stuff. Very exciting stuff. Ricky, I know you have one concept to explain before we cut to the interview. So when we were in the interview, I brought up a principle called Kill Your Clone which is essentially, uh, which I didn't explain within the interview, so I'm going to explain it to you here now. So basically, it's a motivational mindset principle that goes like this. Imagine every at every night at midnight, you will meet a clone of yourself, which is a 24-hour version of you from 24 hours ago. You will fight your clone to the death. If you've done even one thing to be better than your 24-hour clone, then you will be victorious. So, And that's basically, it can be like, incremental. So that's what we were talking about. That's what it means. Zach kind of runs with it and talking about yeah. like being 1% better is an improvement. It doesn't yeah. have to be like huge sweeping things. So anyway, yeah. with that being said, let's roll the tape. Let's roll the tape. We'll start with a few questions about Cobra Kai because we have to absolutely, but then we also have a few questions that are a little bit more off that topic. So I, I think you will appreciate it. Uh, so instead of having like a, you know, origin story type of question, I think it would be actually more, more interesting if you could tell a story of how you became editor on Cobra Kai. I know this story and you probably told it like 50 times, but still, I think that story is so, so worth talking about that like I would love if you could give like a three minute version of it. Uh, I guarantee everything except the three minutes. Sure. <laughs> I'll do my best. It might take longer than that, but more than happy to tell the story because I love this story. Um, so the if I'm going to tell not the long version, but just kind of add a, a little bit of context to it, it goes all the way back to when I'm seven years old and everybody is obsessed with Star Wars except me. And the Karate Kid is my Star Wars. So I essentially was born and raised and developed under the tutelage of Mr. Miyagi via the big screen and then the small screen. And my father noticed this and he said, I'm going to teach all of Zach the life lessons that I want to teach him, but use Mr. Miyagi as an example. So I was taught about things like balance and all of the, the ideas and concepts that are in the film. My father would just say, you remember that one scene with the grape? Or do you remember him standing on the, the bow of the, the boat? Like all these lessons um, were imparted to me via my father, but through Mr. Miyagi. So the Karate Kid has been a huge part of my life. It inspired me to learn martial arts, get a black belt when I was in high school. Just the, the East meets West uh, mindsets and mentality are very much at the forefront of who I am and now what I teach. So that's the backstory, too. I had been editing successfully, doing both features and television for, at this point, it would have been about 
15 or 16 years, I'd come off working on uh, Empire, which was the biggest network TV series in decades. Um, and I had finished another uh, smaller series. And I was kind of sort of looking for work, but I was also in the process of building my business. And I was getting much, much choosier about the shows that I wanted to edit, but I was still at a point where I had to pay the bills. And I remember at one point, I don't even remember what I was searching for at the time, but I was on YouTube and I saw on the sidebar this trailer for a show called Cobra Kai that was going to be made from the Karate Kid series. And my immediate reaction was, oh, how dare they? Don't you dare destroy my childhood because this this is just going to be awful. And I, I was so angry. So I hate watched the trailer. And about halfway through the trailer, I'm like, this doesn't look that bad. So, fine. I'm going to hate watch the pilot. I'm just going to watch it, and then I can tell everybody how <laughs> stupid it is and how dare they. About 15 minutes into the pilot, like everybody else, it's the same story. Completely sucked in. Five hours of my life later, I had watched the entire first season. I was absolutely enthralled by it. Completely and totally fell in love. And my next thought was, oh, I will edit this show. Oh, yes, I will edit this show. Because there's no show that's ever been a better fit for me, both creatively mindset, impact, my deeper why, like it was the perfect blend of everything that I've always wanted to do. So the first thing I did was I scoured IMDb and I became a cyber stalker. Who are all the people that worked on this show? Showrunners. Never heard of them. No idea who they are. I've heard of Harold and Kumar, but no idea who these guys, who else worked on it? Editors. I don't know any of the editors. I couldn't find anybody that I knew, but I just went deep, 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 deep in the archives. And there was this woman that helped just at the very end of season one for like a couple of months that was a post producer that just helped with deliverables and just the technical stuff wasn't even really on the show during the creative part. But I thought this is if anybody's going to be able to at least start a mutual introduction, it's probably going to be her. But what I teach in my coaching program now specific to networking is you can't reach out to people wanting something. You can't reach out to them saying, hey, I'd love a job. Here's my resume attached. Can you pass it along? So instead what I did is, and this is what I always teach my students, you have to provide people value first. And what I did was I rewatched the entire season again, and I wrote like a 4,000-word blog article, not just, this show is awesome, but using it as a teaching tool for people that were struggling with bullies in their lives or boundaries or toxic bosses. How do you use the following lessons from Cobra Kai to deal with adversity? And of course, I also said, P.S., the show is awesome. Watch it immediately. <laughs> and for context, it was right after season one came out when essentially nobody had ever heard of it. And it was on a YouTube channel. Like, yeah, it's, like, yeah, it's yeah, on yeah. YouTube. What, hey, YouTube Cobra Kai? Like, what is this thing, right? <laughs> yeah. Is it like a, yeah, like, is this a, like a short film series that some people made in their backyard? Like, nobody knew. <laughs> um, but I reached out to her and I just sent her a really simple message saying, um, hey, I was, you know, doing some research on IMDb and I saw that you worked on the show Cobra Kai. It was absolutely amazing. Totally sucked me in. I was so excited about it. Just to show you how much I loved it, I just published an article just talking about, you know, how much, how, how great I think it was and the impact that I think it can have. And she responded saying, that's great. You know, I wasn't on it that long, but uh, I enjoyed the, the process and it was, a, it was a great experience. By the way, you available. Because I think they might be looking for somebody for season two. Because she and I had a good relationship from our previous show, even though we only worked together for like four or five weeks. So, of course, my response was like all caps, 150 exclamation points. Yes! I mean, I was a little <laughs> bit more coy than that. But I'm like, yes, I would be very interested. Tell me what I need to do. So from that point, whatever she did on her end, sending a resume, facilitating, whatever the process was, all I know is I got a job interview. 
And when I went into the job interview, it was, I could tell that they weren't interviewing editors at the time. They knew eventually they were going to have to interview them, but it was like very early in the writer's room season two. And they weren't really looking at anybody yet, but they're like, I mean, we should at least talk to this person. So there, there wasn't a whole lot of stress or like, oh, they're going to hire somebody by Friday kind of thing. But here's how the interview started. I come in there, they come in, you know, in the waiting room, they shake my hand. They're like, all right, we're getting ready to sit down. But in the meantime, uh, Ralph is in the writer's room. Would you like to say hi to him real quick? I'm like, I'm sorry, Ralph. Who the- <laughs> yeah, Ralph Macho. He's in the writer's room. Right. I hadn't even done my interview yet. And they're like, we'd like to introduce you to Ralph Macho. I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> so before my interview, meet with Ralph Macho for a couple of minutes. Um, and then we sit down in the interview and just start to better understand their needs and what they were looking for in season two and just kind of essentially told them some of the things that I told you. Um, and for the most part, minus any final logistics, I was offered the job in the room. And I've been on the show all the way through the season finale of season five, which we cannot even talk about and don't even bother trying to ask. I love this story so story. much that, like, uh, it's mind blowing. Like, seriously, uh, and I think it's it's all it's it's a, such a valuable lesson uh, for anyone listening about you know how you actually should look for a job. <laughs> like, don't ask about the job. Provide the value, as you said. Create that relationship first before before there is any any ask involved. Yep, it was. It's never about the ask for me. Everything. What I always teach my students is that you provide value first, and if there is an opportunity, it's not about saying, "Hey, look at me, I'm the best one." Yeah. It's about, "Am I the right person to meet their needs? Mm-hmm. Whatever their challenges mm-hmm. are, am I the solution?" I didn't yeah. know that with Cobra Kai. Yeah. I just went in thinking, "I know I want to work on this <laughs> show, but can I really provide value? Am I the right fit for their workflow, their expectations?" So I spent most of the interview interviewing them. Like, what's mm. your workflow? What kind of hours do you work? Oh. What if my kid has a, you know, a, a spring sing on a Friday morning? Like, how do you feel about me showing up to the office late? Like, uh-huh. what were, why is it that you even need a different editor season two? Like, I wanted to understand all these things. And it was very clear in about five minutes. I'm like, oh, yeah, this is my job. Like, not only is this what I want to do, but I can, I can make your lives easier with my skill set. And they clearly got that sense as well. Whereas I could have gone to do a different interview saying all the same things and it would have been a horrible fit because their expectation of an editor or the hours or creative needs, like all those things might not have aligned, but I knew in about five minutes that this was a win-win for every single person in the room. And, you know, four seasons later, I stand by that assessment. And the, here's the other important piece that people don't realize in hindsight When I went to interview after season one, this was still a little rinky-dinky YouTube show that nobody really had heard of. So it wasn't a matter of, oh, I get to be a part of this immense juggernaut of a success. I came on when people were like, that's on YouTube? Oh, yeah, okay, never mind. Like when nobody was giving it a second shot, I knew what it was going to be back then. I didn't know that obviously it was going to Netflix, but I'm like, how is this not the biggest thing that everybody's talking about? Like I could see that two seasons before it totally Mm -hmm. broke out. Uh Uh Um, But again, had it not become that thing, it still would have been fulfilling to me because it's stories that I want to tell and it's great people to work with. And it was just an added bonus that, you know, everybody on the planet watches it. So it's awesome. Yeah, speaking about the, the, the values, you know, and the rules of Cobra Kai, I, I was thinking about that, that rule, no mercy, strike first. Thinking about whether you have, like, a perspective on it from the editing point of view. Like, how does it apply to editors? Strike first, no mercy. Oh, my God, that's such a good question. That is such a good question. Uh, I'm going to break this into two parts. Uh, the first part is that it, when it, if you were to just ask me, what are my thoughts to the idea of no mercy, right? Strike first, strike hard, no mercy. 
adamantly don't believe that that's the way to approach confrontation, which is why Cobra Kai was the bad guy in the film series, yeah. which is why I loved season one so much is that Johnny comes in and turns it on its head. Yeah. Right. And one of my favorite moments of season two is where he's giving the speech in front of the sign where he realizes he's been wrong. And he's like, you know, sometimes you do show mercy and that's where he starts to lose Hawk. And everybody's like, well, what are you talking about? I loved that it took them two seasons to come to that realization. But no, I don't believe that no mercy is the answer unless caveat you're in the editing room and you're editing Cobra Kai. So (laughs) my my approach to the show. The, the mental mindset that I have, if I'm cutting a montage, if I'm cutting a fight scene, it doesn't matter what I'm doing. My goal is that I'm going to get the note from the showrunners that says, dude, you need to back off. You went too far. Hmm. So music choice, energy, number of cuts. I want that note. I have yet to get that note in four seasons. Usually I push it so far. I'm thinking, oh, this time they're going to tell me to back off. And the response is awesome. Loved it. Keep moving on. So anything where you're like, this is crazy intense or balls to the wall, a lot of that is my mindset as an editor that I will take no mercy. And it's not a matter, well, I know this would be a cool music cue, but we should try something a little bit easier. Or, you know, this action sequence is really complex and it's going to be too much work. So let me just try and do the easier version. Oh, no. When it comes to the timeline, I show absolutely no mercy. Just don't apply that to real life. That's awesome. Would you say that that's for also for... You're editing in general, not just with Cobra Kai, but previous projects as well? Yes, I would say this is a a mindset that is going to obviously have to be very depending on the type of work that you're doing. And I'll give you an example that just popped into my head. Uh, One of the first independent features that I worked on was about a young Indian girl that was in third or fourth grade. And it was about her creating a science experiment where she was growing raspberries and showing that she could grow raspberries more efficiently and get more out of the yield if she was emotionally being like, you know, being nice to them and kind to them. And like, so she had to control an experimental group. The version of No Mercy that is, well, while she's growing her raspberries, I'm going to use Thunderstruck from ACDC. <laughs> that would be a bad idea. But where it does apply to any genre, medium, whatever it is, Mm-hmm. is I'm going to do what I think is best for this, and I'm going to push it as far as I can to get the emotion that I want without mm-hmm. worrying, well, I don't know if the client's going to like that, or I really shouldn't mm-hmm. do this. Mm-hmm. Like, I should just play mm-hmm. it safe. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. When you get deep into a project and you know what their vision is, you want to find the best version that gets them to where they want. Mm-hmm. When you're an editor's cut, give them a, what you think is best. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And they're either going to react positively or negatively, but that helps you better understand the direction yeah. they want to go. And I can all but guarantee that if you show them something that they never conceived of, but it's awesome, they're going to say, mm-hmm. I never imagined seeing the sequence this way, but because you took a chance, I love it. Mm-hmm. Or I really don't like what you did with this, but this gave me some ideas that are different than my original idea. So now let's try this thing instead. Mm-hmm. So yeah. if it's just a matter of I'm... Uh, an editor as in I'm an assembler. Mm -hmm. So, and it's funny that you've talked about your course being the editing chef because I use this analogy all the time with editors. There are chefs and there are short order cooks. Yeah. Mm -hmm. A short order cook is you just give me the menu, give me the ingredients and I'm going to put it together. A chef designs the menu Mm -hmm. and you can be both kinds of editors and there's no shame in being either, but you have to know which one is the best fit for you. Uh I am not a short order cook. Mm -hmm. I am a chef. I want you to give me the ingredients and 
I'm the one that decides what the recipe is. And if you don't like it, we're going to tweak it to get it to something that we both believe in. Mm -hmm. But if you just say, here are the time codes, here are the shots, assemble them, I'm not a short order cook. So you really want to be very clear on what does what's the process that's most conducive to me. And in either version, give what you think is best first, then worry about the version that they want and find the happy medium. Oh, yeah, that's, that's so yeah. good. That's so good. Because, first of all, you can always dial it down, right? And secondly, so many times editors like think about expectations that clients have, like producers have, directors have, and like they make decisions based on those assumptions in their head. And you're saying like mm-hmm. go with like no mercy, right? Go with like go with your guts, like be confident, full in, be confident in your <laughs> yeah. decisions. Uh, I love it. I love it. And by the way, worst case scenario, you show up with confidence, and they don't like that confidence. They don't like your choices. That's mm-hmm. also a good thing because it tells you this project isn't for you, and it's time to move on. Uh, right. Uh, that's a good one. Another one that we have to touch on is wax off. Wax on, right? Basically, the concept of working on the fundamentals. No matter how good you are, you still should work on fundamentals, right? So my thinking is, what is the example of like a mundane activity or task that editors should do on a daily basis, no matter what's their experience level? Mm. Man, these are really good questions. I've never been asked any of this before, so well done. Good. Um, My answer is going to be very different than just about any other editor on the planet that you asked this question, which might be why you asked me this question. Yeah, it is. (laughs) Um, I think that most editors, and I could be wrong, I'm not going to put these words in anybody else's mouth, but it would be that you really need to, to understand the fundamentals of story and structure. Um, you're going to want to be able to, to be organized and efficient both in your bin and in your timeline. And you want to make sure that you can get through all the material as quickly as possible, but still retaining it and be able to meet your deadlines. All of which, by the way, are fun- fundamentals that I think people need to pay attention to that are important. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think the most fundamental skill that anybody needs to have as an editor, if they're going to do better work and do it consistently, is time management. This is an idea that I've been sharing for years that took a long time to catch on. And once it caught on, people are like, oh, my God, I thought that it was about the macro keyboard commands or I've got to work harder and put in more hours. Once I learned time management, my my work skyrocketed, my creativity skyrocketed, Uh and I'm actually working less hours. Uh So if there's one tool that I think that an editor needs to master to be a better editor, it's their calendar. Uh Because if you learn how to time block and you can organize your creativity – then you're never going to get to that point where like, oh my God, like I've got two hours and I haven't cut four scenes and I've just got to rush through it and get it done. So if you learn how to play a game of chess on your calendar instead of a game of checkers, that changes the game with your creativity. And this is something that nobody ever talks about. So bin organization, timelines, macro keyboard commands, workflow, all of those fundamentals are important, but everybody misses time management. That's a great analogy. That's a constant struggle with freelancers, including myself, is just figuring out how to falling into that rut of always working 14 hour days for kind of no reason other than like habit and then trying to get out of that which is what i'm trying to do now is like commit to like at least be like okay eight hours and then i'm done or i can go hang out with my wife or at least do some other things but yeah that's a ongoing struggle for all of us yeah i'm certainly more than happy to to dig much much deeper into this i'll uh the 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 thing that i'll say to make it very very clear and make it simple and if you want to get into the weeds we can But the solution to that problem, which is very common for all creatives, not just freelance editors, but anybody Mm -hmm. that does creative work, the solution is simple. Boundaries. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. 
It's more complex, but the simplest solution is boundaries. Uh So an example that I give uh, all the time that I can give in your circumstance as well, somebody comes to me and they're like, I just, I'm working 14 hour days every day. And I know that there are times when we're in the trenches and we've got a big screening or a deadline, but that's really not it. I make that as an excuse, but that's not really it. It's just kind of the way that I do it by habit. Right. So what I, what I talk to them about is this concept that's called Parkinson's law. And it's a little bit complex, so I've broken it down into something simpler. But Parkinson's law essentially states that the work will expand or contract to the time that you allot it. Yeah. But I have a simpler way to visualize this. So rather than calling it Parkinson's law, I've renamed it to what I call the mother-in-law principle. And the mother-in-law principle is as follows. You ask yourself, how long will it take me to clean my house versus how long will it take me to clean my house if my mother-in-law will be, she- will be showing up in four hours? Mm-hmm. I don't care what your first answer was. It's going to take you three hours and 59 minutes to clean your house because that's how much time you have. So if you say, and again, the, the, the expectations from other producers, clientele, that's different. Those are conversations you need to have to set expectations. Right. But if it's really just about your workflow, mm-hmm. I can all but guarantee if you said to yourself, it takes me 14 hours to do this. Can I do it in 10? You can do it in 10. Of course. Yeah. It's just a matter of reorganizing your day and your priorities. And if it can't be done, then expectations need to change. Yeah. Also, like a lot of great analogies for editing come from writing, actually, right? So one of them... Mm. Oh, very much. It's the same same craft, different tools. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. So one of them uh, is like making a draft, an assembly edit, basically. What people very often do, they, they, they kind of like are editors in their head. They are like, you know, thinking about like, is this edit polished? Is it not? When in reality, like, you know, the first pass should be a creative pass. You should not like let the edit, that editor in your head... Uh, work for you you should just like do a creative version and then you can like you know polish the polish what you came up with right yeah couldn't agree more that's that's one of the the key mindsets that i teach my students is that you should not pursue perfect at the expense of good enough it's a trap that so many editors fall into and the reason why they're working 14 hour days and they have four scenes left to go with two hours before delivery uh-huh. is because the first couple of days, weeks before their deadline, they're spending eight hours cutting a five second transition. Yeah. Like really? <laughs> yeah. Did you really need to perfect that five second transition now? So what I do for my boundaries is I just time block my entire day and I basically got it down to a science. So if you were to give me, uh, let's, we'll keep it simple for now. You give me a scene on Cobra Kai where Daniel and Johnny are sitting on the couch talking to each other and it's give or take a two minute scene. And I've got the usual kind of AB camera coverage and maybe let's say that watching it down, it's going to take me 90 minutes for me to watch the raw footage. (laughs) I guarantee you that scene is going to be cut in two hours and 59 minutes. Do you know why? Because in three hours, I'm moving on. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Because I give myself double the amount of time, the raw footage, I say, I've got an hour and a half. And again, if there are like complexities or stunt sequences, there are variances, so it's not a hard and fast rule. But for something that's simple, if it's X number of uh, raw footage, I give myself double the amount of time to cut it. And once I hit that three, and this happens like clockwork all the time. I'll be cutting and I'll be cutting, I'll be cutting. I just finished, I'm like, I had 90 seconds to spare. (laughs) But yeah. because I've been doing it for so long and it's such a habit, I can just do it. And guess right. what? It's not perfect. It's good enough. And then when I string that one scene together with another scene with another scene and I've got an actor, an episode, I watch it. I'm like, 
okay, that seems pretty yeah. good. There's like five horrible cuts and I need to go back in and finish mm-hmm. those. Right. But what I do is I build into my schedule entire days to do a polish pass. Because uh-huh. another mistake that I see with editors specifically in the scripted world is they string together all their assembly scenes. And then once they string it together, they've got four hours before they deliver and they got to do all their score and their sound effects. And it's just, they're just jumbled messes. By the time I've delivered an editor's cut, I built in like three days of just polishing, mm-hmm. which is one of the things I talk about in the interview with them is the process. Mm-hmm. And I told them my process is not that you're going to get an editor's assembly. You're going to get something that I believe is broadcast ready. Granted, I'm not going to have final visual effects and mm-hmm. a lot of it's going to be temp, but to the best of my ability, you're getting something that you could show to a lay person and they don't know that it's not finished. Uh-huh. The reason being, what I never want from you is an editing note. What I want from you are story notes. Mm -hmm. And you're going to give me a ton of story notes, but I never want, hey, this uh, edit is bumpy, or I can't hear this line of dialogue, or you know, there's a weird music edit in this transition here. I don't want those notes. I want you to say, I'm not feeling the character sadness enough. We need to fix that. Or Mm -hmm. the energy of this montage needs to be ratcheted up. Those are story notes. So I do all the editing notes, but that requires the fundamental skill of time management. I love it so much. That's, you know, time management is something that uh, I think people point out in the editing chef as well as like one of the lessons that they remember up to this point. Uh, but for me, it's a struggle. I am I, not at the point where I mastered it. Um, you know, I, I felt confident enough to, 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 to speak about that subject, subject. But for me, it's a struggle. Like there are moments, I, I had moments in my life where I was really good at time management and I was lo- also time blocking everything. And I was quite specific about like, what's that time block, time block going to be? But then uh, there are moments like, I don't know, the last few months where I kind of like can't do it for some reason. So a qu- quick spoiler alert for you and everybody listening. I haven't mastered it yet either. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes my calendar, if you'll excuse me, is a total shit show. And I don't get my time blocks done. And I'm a ragged mess and I'm in reaction mode putting on other people's fires. It doesn't happen that often anymore, but I'm still learning and iterating and getting better at it. So don't think that it's all about getting to the point of mastery. If you can yeah. get 1% better at time blocking tomorrow than you are today, you're doing just fine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's like that kill your clone type idea. We're just like yep. incrementally being better. And I've noticed that too in regards to like blocking out time where – if I'm focused enough that I can set my alarm for two hours and then just go without anything else and take the phone and just throw it across the room so that I'm not looking at it, that I'm more productive. And then for whatever reason, I get in my way. And after that, it's like, okay, whatever. <laughs> but usually yeah. it's doing it in two-hour blocks, taking a break, then going back to two-hour blocks. I feel I'm so much more productive. I think about time management just like fitness. Like I'm, yeah. I'm, if you're in really bad shape and you want to run a marathon, you can't will yourself to run 13 miles on your first uh-huh. day. Uh-huh. 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 Right? You have to do what you can do. Once you decide upon what I can do, and maybe for somebody that's trying this, undistracted. And by the way, you create distractions. Interruptions are a very different thing. You create the distractions, whether it's your phone, the news, the email. These are all things that you can control. Bosses knocking on your door, those are interruptions that can be managed, but they're different from distractions. The point being that if you find that uninterrupted, you can only go 10 minutes without reaching for your phone, checking email, checking Instagram, fine. Do it for 11 minutes tomorrow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Do it for 15 minutes by Friday. And in a month, maybe you're doing it for 45 minutes. Don't think, well, I'm supposed to time block for two hours because that's what they said in the podcast. Ah, right. I can't do it. This time blocking crap doesn't work. 
right? You got to do it in small pieces. Absolutely. Absolutely. I want to go back to, to Cobra Kai a little bit. I'll tell you about my experience when watching the first season. My immediate reaction after like probably two or three episodes was uh, probably I know where it goes. Seriously, I was like, okay, that's pretty much everything is pretty much like I know where it goes. But then the show proved me wrong. So, you know, at first I, it felt like, like the show for, you know, uh, young teenagers uh, that will be very predictable. But then it like, you know, went in, in a different direction, in a direction that I couldn't predict, right? So my question is how often and what are the, those discussions about like thinking about what the audience will expect from the story versus how it really unfolds? Mm, that's a really good question that I will first say I'm not totally qualified to answer because the majority of those conversations are happening in the writer's room before I'm even on staff for a season. Mm -hmm. And I'm in the same position as you where they start feeding me scripts. I'm like, what is going to happen? And then I like read the finale. I'm like, didn't see that coming. Um, like, who would have thought that uh, we'd be having flashbacks to Vietnam and mm -hmm. young Kree's pushing his sensei into a snake pit? Like, <laughs> didn't see that one coming. Um, so when it comes to those initial ideas, I'm not really a part of those conversations, but it's certainly something that we talk about even in editorial, where really the, the question that we talk about all the time, specifically with major story points, um, turning points or like, finales is, are we meeting the expectation that nobody's going to see this coming? And if we feel like something might be a little bit telegraphed or it's like, yeah, you know, this is this is what they're going to expect. Well, maybe we need to go back either through the episode or previous episodes to remove a scene, reorder a scene, because that's really part of the show's DNA is that whatever you think is going to happen, we're going to make sure you're wrong. Yeah. So a lot of the conversations are already happening in the writer's room before I even show up. Sure. But I'm still a part of being the, the policeman, so to speak, uh -huh. to make sure that we are meeting that expectation. Do you have like any other rules from Cobra Kai that you think that could be translated into our industry? You're talking about just like uh, mentalities? Yeah, mentalities. Go with the one that you think is most important that we haven't mentioned yet. Yes, uh, this, this is going to be a big one. Uh, so I think that one of the, the most important lessons that I've taken away from Cobra Kai as a series, but really stuck out to me more than anything else in season one when I was still a viewer and I wasn't part of the team yet. Um, it's the, the story of how uh, Eli becomes Hawk. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That really struck me, right? And there's a line that Johnny says to him when Eli first comes to the dojo and he's this meek guy and you know, he's got the cleft palate and mm -hmm. super, super scared and wimpy. And he just starts giving him a hard time and bullying him about the lip and calling him all these names. And it's like, oh, you can't say those things, right? And he says, if you're going to be something other than a nerd with a scar on his lip, then you got to flip the script. Mm -hmm. And this idea of flipping the script is so important for creatives. Because we have been taught to believe that we are essentially cogs in a machine. And this is just the way the business is. And the hours are what they are, and there is no more money, and you just kind of have to play this game. And yeah, you're going to have to work nights and weekends, but you know we've got free pizza, and it's going to be great for your reel, right? That's the script that we have in our heads. Like it's we have to adhere to that, but we don't. Right. And the new script needs to be: you are going to respect me, 
and you're going to value me. And I think that those are two scripts that have completely gotten lost in the fray of just the the degradation of just our work culture in general. This goes far beyond being a freelance editor. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I just feel like the the difference between the workers and the people in the C-level suites at the companies across all industries, like we all know that that gap is just widening and widening and widening. And yeah. I think the only way to slowly close that gap is that we collectively have to start saying no if people don't respect us and they don't value us. And I think the pendulum is swinging so far in the opposite direction where you can now go on Fiverr.com and say, I'll edit your whole thing for $5. So how is that not devaluing the work that we do? Those people are always going to be available and those people are going to get paid. You just have to make the choice to not be a part of that pool. Mm -hmm. And if somebody says to you, well, your rate is too high, I can get this for cheaper. Okay, best of luck. You let me know how it works out. But yeah. don't devalue yourself just because the client is trying to devalue you. So instead of thinking, well, you know, I'm just this wimpy, you know, little kid and everybody's picking on me and I'm fine. I'm just going to do what I'm told or run. Like, no, stand up for yourself, flip the script. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't matter what you're working on at what budget level. Make sure they're valuing you and respecting you. That's what we try to tell people as well. Because I think people undercut themselves so much and then they get – they basically just kind of dug themselves a hole where they're like, I'm asking for $100 a project. And I'll never be able to get out of that. It's just like, well, that's why you got to be like, always shoot higher or like, you know, know that you're worth something because it's going to help you in the end. And if, if they don't like it, then then you move on to the next guy or figure out what, what's in the value for you. So the most important word that any freelancer or editor or doesn't matter who you're working for, the most important word in your vocabulary, if you don't want to be pigeonholed, if you don't want to work for toxic bosses and horrible places, the most important word is no. That's it. That's simple. Use how to use the word no. So if somebody's complaining, well, I, people are paying me you know, $100 per job, that's because you're allowing them to. Mm-hmm. That's that's not their fault. That's yours. They right. gave you an offer and you decided to say yes to the offer. Uh-huh. It's scary to say no to work. But if you keep saying yes to the wrong work, the wrong people in the wrong yep. work are going to keep coming because they're going to hear where it's going right. to spread. He yep. does amazing work for $100. Send him my name. Right. Yep. Then you say yes again. And now all of a sudden you're the guy that does everything for 100 bucks. Oh, why is everybody offering me jobs for $100? I'm totally pigeonholed. No, you allowed yourself to be pigeonholed. Yep. Be very judicious and very ninja-like with the word no, uh, and your entire mm. career will change. Mm. <laughs> Zach, you're so good. Seriously. <laughs> uh, first of all, I had goosebumps when you told the hoax story. Uh, but secondly, I also have like an anecdote about saying no, uh, because uh, a friend of mine called me today, and he's someone who I refused to work for, I don't know, like four years right now. Uh, I haven't... like. He, he, like every once in a while, he calls me and asks me for, you know, my editing services. But I pretty much always say no to him. And like the reason for that is basically the types of projects that he's suggesting to me are not something that I want to work on. And I have clients that, you know, I, I'd rather to take good, co- good, good care of my existing clients rather than just, you know, going like off the tangent once in a while, right? And like overloading myself. So I say no to no to him, and you know what? He, he he called me today. He just asked me for 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 a contact to to another friend, and he said, you know what? I really I really like how you manage your your how how you say no basically to to you know to to what people expect of you, and he basically told me, yeah, I, I respect it so much. I try to do the same. <laughs> so. 
And that that just shows that the the fear of saying no means nobody's ever going to call you and they won't respect yeah. you. It's the opposite. It's not. You true. start using the word no, people want to work with you more and they respect you more because you have boundaries. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. So so in that case, it's not burning a bridge. You might actually be building a new one. It's just a matter of doing it right and saying it correctly and yeah. being polite about That's it. That's true. Um, sure. But what if what I always want to remind people of because it's so easy, especially earlier in your career. And I got sucked into this exact same trap is that we get to this place where we start comparing our paths to other people's paths. And we spend hours and hours dwelling on somebody else's IMDb page. Oh, well, you know, we started at the same time or went to the same school and now they're doing all these things and I'm not. Or how did this big time editor work on this project and I want to be working on this and I'm not like we we get into that hole. I've been there myself more than once. But all IMDb tells you is what somebody said yes to. <laughs> There's no such thing as a credit list of everything that somebody said no to. Uh, and if yeah, I were to show you point. my IMDb page for all the projects I haven't worked on, it would be twice as long. <laughs> like, yeah, and some it. of those you'd be like, you said no to what? Are you crazy? But it was a very calculated decision because I'm playing a game of chess with my career instead of a game of checkers. And it did not fit into the path. But I didn't burn any bridges because of it. And usually because of it, they just keep banging on your door even more. Right. But the reason I got Cobra Kai is because I was in a position to say yes because I had said no to a bunch of other stuff at the same time. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's not just an accident and it just doesn't happen by luck. There's a lot of strategy that goes behind it. But you have to realize there's a lot of no's on somebody's resume that are between the lines. Yeah. I want to ask you about your day. What, what does your typical day look like? I mean, think about it. As the question you asked Eddie Hamilton and on your podcast, you ask him about you know how how he goes from you know the beginning of the day till he you know goes to bed. So if you could run us through that scenario when you were working you know on on the Cobra Kai, happy to. The first thing that I'll say is that as we speak right now, my dog uh, is just outside howling, whining to come in the door and distracting me and taking away my focus. That's a snapshot of my entire life. First of all, <laughs> we have so for anybody that thinks I'm perfectly focused and deep work 100% of the time. Constant chaos. If my kids were home right now, five times would be like, sorry, guys, give me one second. I got to deal with this thing. So constant interruptions are just a part of my life. And I do my best to minimize them. But interruptions, they just are what they are. Uh, for the last two seasons of Cobra Kai, because of the pandemic, in this context, thank God, not in the context of the pandemic, but at least for me, 100% work from home. I think I went into the office maybe two or three times over the entire two seasons just for a couple of screenings. So 100% work from home, which means I have complete autonomy of my time. So essentially, in general, and it changes based on the, the schedule and like where I am in my American Ninja Warrior training, which is a whole other conversation, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, but in general, I usually get up around 5.30 or 6. So this morning, I got up around 5.30. Uh, mm-hmm. My usual morning routine is it'll take 15 to 30 minutes and just have some coffee and read a little bit and just totally chill. Uh, then I'll try to do, and when I say try, I don't mean successfully seven days a week, not painting the picture. I've got it all figured out, just trying to get it 1% better every day. But a successful morning is I spent 30 to 45 minutes doing some form of exercise. So mm-hmm. it could be mobility work. It could be stretching. It could be burpees. It could be on a rower. It's nothing too fancy. It's just I want to get the heart pumping, and I want to get the endorphins running. And then from there, I will go take a quick shower, grab a quick bite. And then from 8 a.m. until 11 a.m., I'm in optimized mode. 
So I am working with the, the students in my classes. I have one-on-one clients. I'm doing office hours uh, with students. So essentially, 8 to 11, five days a week, I'm running Optimize Yourself, even during Cobra Kai. They're not, it's even not either Cobra or. Kai. That was actually mm-hmm. one okay. of the, that, oh yeah, one of the boundaries that I set with mm-hmm. them mm-hmm. is I said, if you want me to work on this show, I am unavailable until 11 a.m. It is non-negotiable. There, there's no wiggle room. And they said, okay, no problem. They know that I'm good at managing my time, so they give me that full autonomy. As long as I deliver on my deadline and it's good work, they don't care what I'm doing or when. Yeah. Yeah. So that being the case, until 11 a.m., I'm unavailable to them, and they know emails and Slack messages will be addressed shortly after. So at approximately 11.01 a.m., I am totally in Cobra Kai mode for the rest of the day, and that day could be until 4 p.m., and it could be until 11 p.m. It totally depends on the workload and the deadlines. Um, but I really compartmentalize where up until 11 a.m., Cobra Kai doesn't exist in my mind. 11.01 a.m., I make the switch, and I'm totally in Cobra Kai mode. And then depending on where we are in the process, it's either spending multiple hours a day watching dailies, or it's assembling an episode, or it's doing studio network notes, showrunner notes, getting on Zoom calls, or a combination of all of them. So based on where I am in the episode rotation, and for those that don't know how television works, a really common question I get is, well, do they have more than one editor? And if there is more than one editor, like do you guys share scenes or how does it work? And essentially, you get your own autonomous episodes. Mm. So I will watch cuts occasionally, but otherwise, there's four episodes a season that I know intimately. The other six, I'm like, hey, that saw that on Netflix. You did a great job. Mm-hmm. So it, there just aren't enough hours in the day to be able to work on everything. Because I'm in the four-episode rotation where I have the premiere, which is one, and then I have four and seven, and then I have ten, which is the finale, Mm there is a period of about two months where I'm working on all four simultaneously every single day. Because unlike a network show where you lock, it airs, you work on the next one, it airs, you lock, etc., we essentially Mm -hmm. treat editorial like it's a a ten-episode, five-hour feature film. So we don't start locking until we're almost done with the finale. Then it's like the last probably eight weeks – we lock all 10 episodes, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, done. Mm-hmm. So right after production wraps on any given day, I'm watching dailies for the finale. I'm doing uh, network notes on episode seven and I'm working on studio or producer notes on four and I'm, it's, it's all over the place. So if there's like a two minute, two month window that's complete and total chaos. That's intense. And then after that, I take about half an hour, decompress, do some meditation, do some foam rolling, watch some stupid show on Netflix to, to you know get my mind off the show. I fall asleep, give or take around 10, 10.30, and then I wake up and do it all over again. And I did that for about 15 months straight for seasons four and five back to back. And I don't work seven days a week. That was another one of my stipulations is that there are no weekends and I won't do overtime. So it's actually one of the questions I asked in the interview. And it's one of the most telling questions to ask in an interview to find out what you're up against. Mm -hmm. And the question is a trick question because they think you want another answer when you really don't. At least I don't. I asked them, does this show pay overtime? Mm -hmm. The answer they think you want to hear is yes. (laughs) They want to say, oh, of course we pay overtime as much as you need. You're always going to be compensated. Wrong answer. The answer I want is, no, unfortunately, we have no budget for overtime. Because what that means is when your batshit crazy schedule that doesn't work, you realize that you just have to extend more time and change the deadlines because you're not willing to pay me more money to meet your insane deadline. Mm -hmm. So I asked them, I said, what's the deal with with post and the post budget? And the the person that runs post said, yeah, there's just – 
there's no money in the in post for overtime unfortunately i'm like yes so in four <laughs> seasons i have never worked a minute of overtime on cobra kai if things okay. don't fit which is almost always because the show is way more ambitious than they always think it's going to be mm-hmm. they just push the schedule further which is great mm-hmm. so i can i can maintain some semblance of work-life balance and sustainability. It just means I'm working on it longer than they anticipated. But I've never in four seasons worked a single weekend, other than if it was by choice, just because I'm like, well, you know what? I need to take Friday and do my own personal stuff, so I'll work a Saturday instead. That doesn't count. But as far as needing to work a sixth or a seventh day against my will or having to work a super late night, not one minute of overtime in four seasons. So I've never worked on it past 10 o'clock. 10 o'clock is pushing it when we're in like season finale mode. Other than that, I'm usually done by seven or eight and get a solid eight hours of sleep. And that includes finding time to train. So it can be done. But again, you have to be good at time management. Yeah. Hey, man, first of all, I I needed to ask this question because like for me, it's super important to to find out how, how, you know, how, how you manage that like uh, work-life balance because this is super important, right? And I know that's something that you focus on very strongly and you know uh, as a father of two as well i have to ask what do you do to be present father like i i know that sometimes you know being present father and like being good father is not about the quantity of time necessarily but it's about quality right how do you make sure that you are present parent while also being a high profile editor like you are uh well first of all you answered most of my question already by saying all the right things Uh Uh, but i'll I'll expand upon all of them and i'm actually going to go a step backwards which is everybody's working towards work-life balance. And I even mentioned that a few minutes ago, that it's you know trying to find some semblance of work-life balance. But I think there's a fallacy in that equation. And the fallacy is that if we're, we have a scale or a seesaw and we're trying to find balance, one thing's going to suffer when the other one changes. Yeah. Which means that mathematically, if I work more, family has to suffer. Or if I spend more time with family, work has to suffer because there needs to be a balance. And I think that's wrong. In today's day and age, you're not going to find the perfect balance of I'm working 40 hours a week and I'm spending 40 hours a week with my family. Not possible. So what I think we need to work towards is work-life presence. And the way to work towards work-life presence is to set, set expectations with both parties or all parties in your life that when I'm with you, I'm with you. But the expectation is I'm not going to be with you all the time. So what I've had before every season of Cobra Kai is a conversation with my wife and my kids. And I say, another season's about to start. We all know how this is going to work. Do we all agree that this is a good fit for us now? Because in general, I'm working from home. My kids get home at three o'clock. They need help with their math homework. I'm totally here. But there's a period of two months where I basically don't live here. And I live in this one room and I'm editing the show. Mm-hmm. And I set the expectation. This is going to happen again. Are we all okay with it? Yeah, we're totally okay with it. Or, well, here are the challenges. And then, of course, my son is like, Dad, you have to work on it. It's my favorite show. So there's that component. <laughs> but the trade-off is rather than balance, the trade-off is presence, which is if it's between 8 a.m. and 6 or 7 p.m., you're going to have limited attention for me. And that's expected. Uh-huh. But when I'm done with work, I am done with work. Uh-huh. So if you and I are playing a game of checkers or watching TV or whatever it is, I'm not secretly sending a message to the producer because they asked about notes. I disappear. Again, Cobra Kai doesn't even, there's no way that they can get a hold of me after a certain point, And they know that. Uh-huh. And not only do they know that, they respect it and they encourage it. So one of the things about our work culture that we have via Slack is if we have a, an assistant editor it's near the end of the day, oh, hey, I might have to go into overtime or do this and that. And they're like, stop working. This can wait until tomorrow. 
And we make it a point that unless something is truly urgent, we're not sending messages at 8, 9, 10 p.m. We only communicate during times that people are available because we want to allow the rest of the team to be present with people. So I always set that expectation that, listen, this week is going to be really challenging. I'm just letting everybody in the house know I'm going to be tired. I've got long hours ahead. But on Saturday, we're all going to go do this thing. So as long as I meet my end of the bargain, which is whatever the event is or whatever, if I'm there and I'm present, they don't care about the other five. So even though there might not be mathematical balance, they're still getting presence and then they don't worry about it. So that's really the thing that I think people need to spend more time on because presence is such a rare thing these days. Yeah, an experiment you can run, like whenever you're like sitting with your friends uh, by the table, right? If one person takes out their phone, you can be sure then that in the next three minutes, another person will reach out for their phone. There is no doubt about it. You can bet any money on it. Speaking of uh, being a father, um, one of the things that my wife and I agreed upon very, very early is that there would never be screens at the table, ever. Yeah. There's never going to yeah. be phones, iPads, well. nothing. It's not that I'm saying our kids didn't have screens, but I said never at the table. And what we've noticed now that they're older, they're now 12 and 10, is we've seen the results of that experiment. And when our kids, even when they were five years old, we would go to like family dinners or whatever, and people would say, your kids are just like so mature and they're having real conversations. And then other kids aren't even are either not paying attention because they have their screens or their screens are taken away. And they're frankly little shits yeah. Yeah. because they don't know how to just be present with other people. Yeah. And our kids are totally fine with that. Yeah, they have phones and like every once in a while it's like, hey, get your nose out of the phone and let's have a conversation. Mm-hmm. But because that was um, really ingrained into them at a very early age, they've learned the skill of being present. Uh-huh. And this is a very, very undervalued and rare skill in today's society. So if you can learn how to be present with people, just that alone can change the game for you both personally but also professionally. Yeah. I want to ask you a question that actually one of your students asked, uh, Kyle Boberg. So I reached out to him mm. because that's a, that's a common friend and also a student of Aiden Chef uh, before he joined your program as well. So he asks, what have you learned from your students in the Optimize Yourself program? Man, you're just throwing like these huge <laughs> questions at me. Heaters. Heaters. Oh, man. Um, <laughs> I, it, it's such a big question that I don't even know how I can answer it. The shortest version is I've learned so many things that I don't even know how to answer this question. Uh So if anybody thinks, oh, well, it's hard to answer because I don't know if I've learned something, the problem is the polar opposite. I have learned so much from my students. And I think that uh, not necessarily a lesson I've learned from my students, but a lesson I learned because of my students, which I think will be very applicable going back to the beginning of our conversation, is that you just have to put yourself out there. Mm-hmm. And you need to do whatever the thing is that you want to do. Because I myself am a recovering perfectionist. And if I were waiting for my coaching program, my online courses, or my podcast to be where I thought they should be, I'd have zero episodes and no students. <laughs> to this day, I'm still there's still things that are out there in the world. I'm like, oh, I can't believe I said that, or this graphic should look different, or you know, whatever it is. But the fact that I put myself out there and I've workshopped the things that I've learned with my students has made me better at what I do. Uh So I could have read all the books in the world about productivity, time management, how to write outreach emails. But Mm -hmm. I've learned almost everything that I have because my students come to me and they're willing to be vulnerable and say, here are the challenges that I'm facing. I don't come to them and say, I have the answers for you. I say, that's a great question. I have no idea. Let's figure it out together. 
And yeah. as people start to ask the same questions over and over and over, I start to see patterns. Mm-hmm. I'm like, all right, I, I think I see a structure here mm-hmm. to be able to help a lot of the same people struggling with the same things. Um, but I think that that's probably the, the biggest lesson that I learned because of my students. Lessons learned from my students. I've learned that I have a tendency to talk a lot. That's one lesson that I've learned, <laughs> which is very surprising because for my entire life, I've always seen in my head and had this script going back to scripts that I'm, uh, I'm an introvert. And it depends on who you ask. If you were to ask any of my in-laws, they'd say, he seems nice, but he's just so quiet all the time. <laughs> and then you ask somebody that works with me or listens to the podcast, and you're like, he never shuts up. <laughs> so it all depends on the context. But that's yeah. certainly one of the things I've learned. I, is that, uh, I, I have a tendency to, to talk and go on a lot, but I'm just so passionate about this stuff that it's it's hard. I just I feel like I want to download everything I've got in my head and yeah. give it to everybody else. Yeah. So I know what you mean. You have students that take on the challenges and they do the right things and they are successful in changing their mindset. And you have others that, you know, they, they still consume content, but struggle to implement it in their lives. So have you figured out what's the difference between those two groups? What do they do differently? What is the most important like factor or that like differentiate that differentiates them? Uh, it's hard to make a blanket statement without having a little bit more information because I want to point out and be very clear that everyone's circumstances are different. But if I am making a blanket statement about a general, uh, if we've got two general groups, one of which these are people that are implementing and that are following through, and we have another group that are just consuming, 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 and not taking action, my suspicion is the number one difference is willingness to fail. Mm-hmm. The people that are implementing are willing to fail. They're willing to learn through failure. The other ones are too scared to fail. That's really that's really the the only main difference is, you know what? I'm going to put something out there. It's good enough. I'm probably going to make mistakes. I'm going to get feedback. But by getting that feedback, I'm going to iterate and get better. Uh-huh. So the way that I learned how to be a podcaster was releasing uh-huh. really crappy podcasts. Uh-huh. Like really, like I go back eight years ago and I'm like, oh my God, I released this. But the feedback I got made me better. And again, this 1% better every single day. One of the things I was told that at the time really made me angry, but they were right, really early in the, in the fitness and post days, not even optimize yourself yet, in fitness and post, yeah, I, I somebody reached days, out yeah. and said, really loved your interview. Maybe next time you can let the guest talk. Like, Ooh. <laughs> Ooh, that one hurt. But the reason it hurt is because they weren't wrong. They could have gone about it differently, but they weren't wrong. I'm like, yeah, I do spend a lot of time kind of monopolizing the microphone. So it's taken me years to not perfect, but to refine that craft. And one of the pieces of feedback that I got maybe like a month ago that really stuck out that was like, I'm glad I stuck with this, uh, is I interviewed somebody that's really big in the Spartan racing community. This guy does like 100-mile obstacle course race marathons for a a week Mm -hmm. straight. Like He's a legend in the industry. Mm -hmm. And I had interviewed him. His name was uh, Evan Perparis, if anybody wants to go in the, the archives and listen. Uh, but he sent me a screenshot of his dad sending him a text message. And the text message was, this host is really good. And Evan's response was, yeah, probably the best person that I've ever hosted. And the dad responded by, he's really good at guiding the conversation, but not monopolizing and hijacking it. And I was like, Mm -hmm. that's because I put myself out there making the mistake and somebody pointed it out. So I've now found what I think is the right balance of I it's not just a matter of that was great. So my next question is, what do you think of this? Yeah. Amazing answer. So my next question is this, like there are people that do that. 
and they only let the person talk and they're so boring to listen to. I want to hear a conversation. But I had to learn what's the balance where I don't want it to be 90-10 where only they talk, but it's been years and years of refining the craft. What is the balance? And now that's what people say all the time. I love your additional insights, but I really get to know the guest better. But that started with me being willing to fail, put out something bad and receive the feedback. Mm -hmm. So the difference between I'm implementing and getting things done Mm -hmm. versus I consume, consume, and I don't take action is willingness to fail. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's such a good point. In regards to the physical and then, you know, we're always sitting down a lot and, you know, you're very strong and moving and breathing exercises. That is an important part of your day as well as editing. What your take on that is in regards to like editing in your own work cycle. And this was essentially my quest for the first several years of this program when it was called Fitness and Post. It was all about how can I move more consistently throughout my day? Not because I want to lose weight or I want to have six pack abs, but because I want to be more creative and I want to sustainably be able to do this job at a high level. So there is no question, and science has proven this beyond the shadow of a doubt, that nothing helps to generate more consistent levels of creativity than moving. And conversely, there is nothing more detrimental to your creativity than being sedentary. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So knowing that one of the key creative components of the filmmaking workflow is the editor, Mm -hmm. what if, this is a crazy idea, we put them in a dark windowless room with a chair, (laughs) and they never go anywhere and they never move, but let's expect the best from them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Should work, right? Yeah. That's the way Why things not? have worked for over 100 years. <laughs> yeah. But it doesn't work that way anymore because there's more work and there's tighter deadlines. Mm-hmm. And everybody thinks, oh, I'm going to learn the new macro keyboard command, which is going to make me more productive. That's going to save me hours of my day. No, it's not. It just means they're going to expect more work in the same long day. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Productivity is a trap. Uh-huh. is an endless trap where the more productive you become, the more they expect of you. If it yeah. weren't a trap, the fact that we have washers and dryers and refrigerators, we'd have hours a day to read books because we don't have to bang our clothes against rocks anymore. Yeah. <laughs> we just found ways to fill the time. Yeah. So if you're going to sustainably be creative and be able to generate ideas and solve problems, you mm-hmm. can't wait until the next hiatus to fit fitness into your life. Now, this is yeah. different from I go to the gym five days a week and I'm pumping iron or I'm running on a treadmill. Okay. But your habit during your workday has to be that you are constantly moving. Again, not to get six-pack abs or burn calories, but to generate creativity. So I built a myriad of habits for which I don't even think about it. On my worst days on Cobra Kai, when I'm in the trenches, I still get the alert on my phone every day. You've reached your standing 12 hours out of 12 goal. The worst it's ever, like I'm just in the trenches. I still hit the goal if I'm getting up and down every hour with zero effort because I've been doing it for so long. It's just a thing. So I never find myself anymore, and I used to, but I never find myself anymore looking at the clock and saying, oh my God, it's been five hours? I haven't had water, I haven't gone to the bathroom, and I haven't eaten. That's where I used to be, and it was very detrimental to me. So now never do I go more than about 90 minutes. I don't even need a clock. Used to use timers. Now never go more than 90 minutes, and I'm up, I'm moving around, and I'm doing something. And then people equate that, well, aren't you spending less time at your keyboard? That means you're not working as often. But if I'm a creative problem solver, wouldn't I still be on the clock if I'm taking a walk around the block trying to figure out how to cut a montage? I might not be in the timeline, but I'm still editing. I mean, my God, I edit in my sleep. We all have. Yeah, yeah. Right? So I want to create an environment that's conducive to more creativity rather than not. But the confines and the expectations of the way we work as editors is completely and totally ass backwards. 
So that's that's why one of one of my non-negotiables whenever I go to a job and nowadays it seems like nothing. But 10 years ago, I'd go in and I'd say, I need a height adjustable workstation. Mm -hmm. You need a what now? I need a desk that goes up and down and it needs to be motorized. (laughs) Oh, yeah, those aren't in the budget. Okay, I'll bring my own. So I walked into Empire, Fox Studios, carrying a giant desk saying, which room is mine? And I put my own desk down because they weren't willing to furnish a height adjustable workstation. (laughs) Guess what? Season two, everybody got height adjustable workstations. Yeah. But I had to start with me walking in and bucking the trend (laughs) because I knew it was the only way I was going to successfully get through that season. I had to be moving. You want to talk about the fundamentals, going back to one of your very first questions, time management and movement. Uh You get good at those, your life changes as an editor, completely changes. Uh That's that quality versus quantity as well. Yep. I work way less hours than everybody else. And I've proven this show after show after show because in TV, everybody's equalized. Everybody has the same producers, the same writers, the same length of script, the same kind of dailies and the same notes. Yeah. So if I'm working on a different show and somebody says, well, it's great that you only worked that many hours on Cobra Kai and our show, it's crazy. Yeah. Well, when we basically I have a control group and an experimental group on every TV show that I work on. I always work the least amount of hours of the entire team. Mm-hmm. My work isn't any crappier because of that. And in fact, usually the quality is even higher. So yeah. I'm the guy that's out the door at 730 and I'm coming back the next day and another guy slept on the couch because he couldn't meet his deadlines. Yeah. Just because time management and movement are not fundamental skills in his arsenal. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. In uh, your interview on um, Art of the Cut, you had mentioned that basically being you're essentially a TV editor, but thinking as a film editor and basically doing the least amount of moves to get to the end, which I thought was really awesome. Just like mm-hmm. being like being efficient and being able to do you're doing the same amount of work, just smaller and the same quality. Correct. I'm going to I'm going to change one thing about that, though. What's that? I don't like the word efficient because we're all working towards efficiency. Mm. Efficiency doesn't work if you're doing the wrong things. So I prefer to be effective. You can be efficient and have all the macro keyboard commands and you can make all the worst, shittiest edits on the planet. You're a more efficient (laughs) editor than I am. I know a lot of editors that know a lot more keyboard commands and have like the little gaming setup and they press one button and 78 things happen. More power (laughs) to you. Good for you. You know what I need? I need a keyboard. That's all I yeah. edit with. I don't have preferences and settings and all this craziness, but mm-hmm. I know that I make effective choices. Uh-huh. And because I make right. effective choices and I'm decisive and I'm not worried about failing, yeah, that's true. I work less hours than most other people. That's true. I, yeah. I, I just I just recalled in the blink of an eye, uh, Walter March like calculate how many cuts we had. He had how how much time he has spent on the film. And that's like you know that's that's the equation. It was like one and a half one and a half cut per day. That's crazy. Obviously, there, right. there, there goes much more into it, right? But Zach, I want to ask you about something else, because like, it was a little bit surprising to me when I went over your IMDb that uh, you also directed a, a documentary, Go Far, uh, the Christopher Rush story, right? So back then, you were also like very successful, you know, TV and film editor. So what inside you like made you to make that movie? And how did you come up, come up with that story? Uh, what you know took you there, and why did you decide to take on the producer's role and the director's role on it and the writer's role? Sure, uh, I, I love that you've done your homework. This is actually, uh, if not one of the most fulfilling moments of my career and what I do now, it's probably it's it's certainly right up there and is a big determinant of the work that I do as a coach and a teacher. So, uh-huh. um, but it didn't start out that way. 
So the, the short version of the origin story is that my senior year of undergrad at film school at University of Michigan, I was in the high-level production class that everybody takes to have their senior film and graduate with something on their reel. Mm-hmm. Um, mostly production, which means a lot of running around and equipment and cameras. and I mean, everybody knows what the production world looks like that's listening to this. And first day, somebody is wheeled in in a wheelchair that clearly is physically disabled later found out had muscular dystrophy, was a quadriplegic, had no use of his legs or his arms. And the cool kids in the class that thought that they were going to be the next Scorsese's were kind of snickering and they were saying, man, I hope none of us get stuck with that kid. Because it was you paired up for the entire semester in groups of four to make your senior film. Mm -hmm. And boy, did that piss me off. So I went up to him during a break and I said, I don't really know you, just want to introduce you. My name is Zach. I'm not sure what your situation is, but if you'd like to come to a group, come into our group. Little did I know that is the number one defining moment of my entire life was that day. Mm. So his name was Christopher Rush. He and I became very, very good friends, had a lot of interest in film and life and everything else. Uh, We made that film. Uh, He ended up uh, standing up in my wedding. A very, very close friend of mine. Um, And spoiler alert for anybody that uh, is going to watch the movie. uh, He unfortunately passed away. So he passed away. uh, I think it was two months after he stood at my wedding. And I was at his funeral service. And all of a sudden, people started to tell the most amazing stories about his accomplishments earlier in his life, none of which he had told me because he was very humble and didn't like to talk about the things that he accomplished. He didn't want to be judged by those things. Um, But the short list of them would be that uh, he literally was the national poster child for muscular dystrophy. For those that are younger, they're not going to remember this. But for anybody older, they remember the Jerry Lewis telethon every every Labor Day. And he was sitting on the stage next to Jerry Lewis and traveled all over the country with him, raising hundreds of millions of dollars for this organization. Um, Had done many other things well beyond that. But the biggest one that stuck out to me is that he was the first quadriplegic to become a licensed scuba diver at the age of 14. So just imagine you cannot use your arms, you cannot use your legs. And your response to that is, I know, how about you weight me down and you throw me in the middle of the ocean? (laughs) That's the kind of person that he was. So as everybody started to tell all of these stories, another person had uh, come up and said, you know, I don't know if anybody's aware, but fairly recently before his death, uh, Christopher started to build this motivational program because he wanted to give back to kids and those with disabilities. Um, And he had built this acronym. It was called GoFAR, which stood for Goals, Obstacles, Focus, Act, and Review. And I, whatever you believe spiritually, religiously, like assign whatever name of a God or a universe or whatever it is, whatever that thing is, planted this idea in my head that said, the story can't end here. It's just like this voice that I heard that's like, this story can't end in this funeral home today. Mm-hmm. And my response was, yeah, you're right. And then I kind of looked around and I'm like, <laughs> shit, I think I'm going to have to be the one to tell it. Because I'm the filmmaker friend, um, so I'm the one that's got the tools. So I remember going up and giving a speech right after that. And I had written a whole eulogy, and I scrapped my eulogy. And I'll never forget this. I walked up there, and I said, I had this whole speech prepared, but I don't think that it's right anymore. What I've learned today is that Christopher's story can't end here. So mark my words. The day will come when you're going to see a movie poster with Christopher Rush on it, and it's going to be called Go Far, the Christopher Rush Story. I'm calling it right here. And everybody's like, oh, that's so nice and, you know, good for you. Little did they know it was going to take me the next eight years of my life. 
But that's what I did. I just plugged away endlessly one day after another, after another, trying to raise money at the time, like Kickstarter didn't even exist yet. Um, but essentially I spent the next eight years of my life because I felt it was my duty to tell the story thinking, well, I just need to get this documentary out of the way and then I can go back to being the successful film editor and I can win my Oscar someday. But I learned so much about life and who we are and like just the meaning of what we do and having a purpose behind it that by the time I was done with the documentary, I'm like, I don't give a crap about winning awards anymore. What I care about is helping other people achieve their dreams and I think I've got a framework to help them make that happen. So now what I've been doing for the last several years is Cobra Kai has become my side hustle. And you may laugh at that, but when I signed on to season five, I said, I want to make sure everybody knows that Cobra Kai is my side hustle. Just going to be very clear about that. So now what I do is I help creative professionals learn how to build a more fulfilling career and achieve their dreams without having to sacrifice their health, their relationships, or their sanity in the process. And I've I use the GoFar program to teach them how to achieve their goals. So the documentary went from, oh, this would be a thing. Maybe I need to do it to it's now literally the entire reason that I wake up in the morning. Wow. <laughs> oh, I, I didn't expect that. Like, I, I yeah, <laughs> it's so good. Let me guess. You expected, well, you know, I had this project and, you know, I thought it'd be like a, a good way yeah, to kind of get a, a documentary expected. credit on my reel. And, you know, it was a good experience and I'm glad I did it. Like, yeah, that's what I expected too, but no. Changed my entire life. Um, so, yeah, the, the, the documentary is just a, a small piece of something much larger that I'm building. And a lot of the work that I'm doing with the Optimize Yourself program is very much uh, go far intertwined with it. And there are so many other things to come that... Um, people don't even know exist yet because they only exist in my head. But it all starts with his story and the documentary. That's great. That's great. Uh, I have one <laughs> last question. For me, Cobra Kai is like the balance, like this, the theme of Cobra Kai is, is the balance between being a nice guy and a badass, right? Mm -hmm. And as editors, you know, we, we have to manage the relationships with producers, with directors, And you have to keep the balance in check. So my question to you is, how do you navigate that, that balance? This is a question that ties together everything. Cobra Kai and everything editor. Very yeah. well done. Well, well played. Um, the, the simplest answer I can give is that it's very complex being in the position of the editor because you are essentially both a therapist to everybody involved And you were also a child between multiple groups of divorced parents, <laughs> all of whom have all of their own ideas and objectives. Well, don't tell the producer you made that note. And who did this? Well, he, ah, like you just get caught in the middle of everything. So as an editor, you're often playing the part of a mediator. And the way you're not going to get in trouble is that you have to make it clear where your loyalties lie. So then the question is, well, who do I need to be loyal to? Am I loyal to the producer? Is it the studio executive? Is the the DP that ended up hiring me? Like, I, got, I have to be loyal to somebody. You are loyal to the story. If your loyalty is to the story and delivering the best product possible, nobody can argue with you. Because they know that your intentions are true. Every once in a while, you're still going to get in trouble. Like, who, who changes music? Well, the pr producer asked me, well, why? I told you I didn't like that music. It's like, you guys need to talk. Let's figure this out. Mm -hmm. But ultimately, my job is to just be the sounding board and the shepherd to get you to what I think is the best version of your story. But my loyalty is to the story. So I always make it very, very clear when I work with uh, people. And I even had this conversation in my interview for Cobra Kai. I said, 
I will not work with people unless the best idea wins. What is your response to that? They're like, are you kidding? We love that. Like we argue all the time, but it's always about the best idea winning. And the example that I use is that if I'm working on a scene and I've got my door open and it's late at night and the janitor comes by with their cart and they pick up the garbage and then they just kind of lean in. They're like, that would be better with a close up instead of a wide shot. My mindset is not, well, you're just the janitor. What do you know? My response is, holy shit, they're right. Oh, I'm going to change that, right? Because the best idea wins. So as long as that's where your loyalty lies, nobody can ultimately argue with you. And if they do, that's on them and that's not on you. So that's how you strike the best balance is always making sure your loyalty is to the story. That's great. Where can people follow your work? And if you have something you want to add, then go ahead. Anybody that wants to find me, they can go to optimizeyourself.me. I've got hundreds of hours of podcasts. I've got ultimate guides, uh, all kinds of resources. So for anybody that's either looking to upgrade and transform their lifestyle, they want to ban it, better manage their time and their creative energy, or they want to learn how do I actually apply all of these things so I can meet the right people, get in the right rooms, and I can transform my career and do something that's actually fulfilling that doesn't completely burn me out. I also have all kinds of Um, resources about uh, whether it's career outreach, managing your portfolio, uh, resumes, preparing for job interviews, writing cold outreach. I mean, I basically, I built my entire career on sending people cold email messages. So I've got all kinds of resources, workshops. So they go to optimizeyourself.me. I will then guide them wherever they need to go on their journey. Great. Zach, thanks so much, Zach. It was a huge You are more than welcome. Great questions. Thank you. Thank you. We did our best. And there you have it. Another great interview. Uh, I want to say that my favorite part to that was when Zach basically corrected me about being efficient over being effective, saying that you can be efficient, but you can make a bunch of crappy edits. And just because you're fast doesn't mean it's going to be quality work and changing my mindset into thinking like, you know, I was like, oh, yeah, that's like huge. It was kind of an epiphany. Like being effective is way better than being efficient. So I really love that part of the interview with Zach. That was great. Yeah, I agree with you. I think I overused the word, the word efficiency. Uh, and yeah, like what really matters is effectiveness. That's that's 100% true, right? Uh, so yeah, you, you want to pair the two together, of course, so that they work yeah. with each other, right? Yeah, I love that he has put a lot of pressure on time blocking and how mm-hmm. it's super important for you as an editor uh managing your time like is something huge uh, yeah. and uh, and also on exercise you know that's something that i have to work on so for me it was just a reminder that yeah it's not this like thing that you can do once you have some extra time right now right. it's something you actually have to design uh, into your working day him talking about it wasn't about like you got to work out every day it was more like you just have to move Like we're sitting down all the time. It doesn't have to be like, yeah, like, you know, 300 push-ups, right? <laughs> right. Like it, just take some time and do some yeah. stuff, like sit down, stand up. Yeah. If you have just the right make desk sure that you, that you move. Exactly. Yeah. And by the way, so, uh, I loved his interview with Walter Merch that he did on his uh, podcast. So I, mm-hmm. I, I encourage anyone to listen to that because like it was a great episode where Walter Merch mm-hmm. actually explains why it's so important to, uh, you know, stand up, move a little bit, uh, things yeah. like that. Like he connects it to our lymphatic system 
and mm-hmm. all of these things which are like very insightful so uh, uh, yeah yeah that's a great listen we'll we'll link it in the description as well uh and just one last thing i loved what he said about cobra kai being his side hustle you know yeah <laughs> because like for anyone listening he's like you know it's like my goodness you you got such a great editing gig right but yeah. for him it's a side hustle it's, I actually like relate with that a lot because while while I you know uh, aspire to to edit like big titles mm-hmm. at the mm-hmm. same time I love the the ownership aspect of cut to the point uh, yeah and that's yeah. something I never want to stop you know I, I I want to keep it going and not only that like you know the the, the relationships and the things we do in editing chef uh, it's just something I want to keep going no matter what so I, I can sure. relate to to that uh, aspect. Yeah. Uh, and just a reminder, we're sponsored by Soundly. If you have any interest in getting a great platform for anything sound effects, there's a link in the description. All right, everybody. <laughs> Hope you enjoyed the episode. Take care. <laughs> see you. See you. Kill the cloud. Bye. Thank you for taking time out of your busy day. If you like what you've heard, please rate, review, or subscribe on whatever platform you've listened to this on. Your reviews help other editors to discover the show and tell your friends. Also, if you have any questions or comments, leave us a message at SpeakPipe. There's a link in the description or email us at podcast at cuttothepoint.com. 